Amen. <clears throat> well, good morning, everybody. We are in Philippians chapter 2, if you want to turn there, Philippians chapter 2. I've entitled the message, How Much Do You Love Jesus? And those songs were perfect. Because when you stop and you think of the love that God shows to us, to an unbeliever, it would almost seem reckless. Because God loves us unconditionally. Um, it's not based on our performance, because we fail them, don't we? But the good news is we're getting better, aren't we? We're not what we used to be. We're not what we should be. But He's still working on us, changing us from glory to glory. And the reason is, is that I'm saved. My soul is saved. But this flesh is not redeemed yet. This flesh is the problem. It's your problem. It's my problem. It gets in the way. I mean, we talked last week about murmuring and complaining. How'd you do this week? I mean, I was really trying to focus on it, and I had to confess during Wednesday night prayer night, I've failed. It's so easy to talk smack, isn't it? It's so easy to get pulled into it, you know, instead of just, hey, what a beautiful day. What's going on in your life? Oh, did you hear about so-and-so? What did you think of that? And we just get sucked right into it. And you've got to really consciously make an effort not to murmur and complain. See, Paul tells us that we should be Christ-like. We should have the mind of Christ and that we should all be like-minded. And then he tells us how to do that. He says, do all things without complaining and disputing. Wow. That's a tough order to follow. And so today we want to talk about God's love for us. And I think those songs were really appropriate he loves you so deeply that He was willing to come down from glory to give His life for you on the cross to pay the price for our sins. A price, a debt that He didn't owe and a debt that we couldn't pay so that we would have eternal life because sin entered into mankind in the garden when Adam and Eve fell. And because of that, we were all born into sin. And so God, in all of His wonder and splendor, did the unthinkable and came down from glory to pay the penalty for our sin at a great cost. And the suffering and the pain that He went through, we will never understand to take the world's sin upon you all at one time. All the sin from the past, present, and the future poured out on Him at one time to pay that price. And it was accepted by the Father, we know, because of the resurrection. So how much do you love Jesus? You know, talk's cheap. And we have this saying, you know, don't talk the talk, walk the walk. Actions speak louder than words. I think our actions really show how much we love Jesus. When God says to love one another, to love Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love your neighbor as yourself, the one key thing that defines us as Christians is love. Because the fruit of the Spirit is love. And then all those things that follow it, all those things in Galatians 5 that follows what, the, what love is, just describe love. Patience, temperance, long-suffering. It just describes what love is. Joy. So how can you say you're a Christian and not have joy and not have love? How can you say you're a Christian and say, I'm not going to forgive that person. You know what they did to me? Who cares? You know what you did to Jesus? 
See, everybody likes to blame the Romans for Jesus' death, the Jews for Jesus' death. Why don't we just blame ourselves? My sin put him on the cross. And it's not like you needed the blood of Jesus more than I did. So who am I not to forgive when I've been forgiven so much? Who am I not to love when I've been loved so much? We see a demonstration of two men today as we start in chapter 2, verse 19, and we're going to go to the end of the chapter, verse 30. We see a demonstration of two men that truly, I believe, love Jesus with all their heart. And it was shown and proven by their actions. And usually this portion of Scripture is just like kind of glossed over. I mean, you know, we focus on the first part of chapter 2 because there's great stuff in there. And you get to these two guys who are just servants. And it's usually like read really quick and then they just go into chapter 3. But I think we should stop and take a look at the example that the Apostle Paul shows us in these two men, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Now, Timothy, you've all heard about the book of Acts, Paul's letters. Matter of fact, Paul wrote first and second Timothy. So, you know, all about Timothy, Paul's right hand guy. But who's Epaphroditus? We don't even hear about him except for in Philippians chapter two. We hear about him. And then once mentioned in chapter four of Philippians. But these two guys, I think, demonstrate. How much they love Jesus by their actions. You know, I think about Peter when he wrote in his epistle, speaking and encouraging women who are married to an unbeliever. And he said, you know, if your wife's not hearing you, I'm paraphrasing, shut up and let your lifestyle be a witness to him. You may be the only Bible some people ever read. And they may not even know you, but they look at your lifestyle and they see something different. When you looked at Timothy, when you looked at Paul, when you looked at Epaphroditus, you saw three men, totally different men, that loved Jesus with all their heart. Totally different. Paul was the Hebrew of the Hebrews. Jew all the way through. Timothy, half Jew, half Gentile. Epaphroditus, full-blown Gentile. Three completely different people, three completely different backgrounds. What united them together? Jesus. No more Jew, no more Gentile, no more bond or free, one in Christ. So my question is, how much do you love Jesus? So as we look at this portion of Scripture, let's read 19 through 30 and get introduced a little bit more to these two men. Paul says, but I trust you, verse 19, in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. For all, this is heavy, for all seek their own and not the things which are of Christ Jesus. But you know he's a, his proven character that as a son with his father he served with me in the gospel, therefore, I hope to send him at once as soon as I see how it goes with me. But I trust in the Lord that I myself shall, come, shall also come shortly. Yet I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, 
but your messenger and the one who ministered to my need, since he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick, for indeed he was sick almost unto death. But God have mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I sent him the more eagerly that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less sorrowful. Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such men in esteem, because for the work of Christ he came close to death, not regarding his life, to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. Father, we thank you for the Word of God. And Lord, remind us of how much we have rather than what we don't have. And Lord, let us be an example of those that rejoice in who you are and to share your love rather than murmur and complain. And so, Lord, right now we pray you give us ears to hear what the Holy Spirit's saying. And let us not just take these words into our mind, but bring it down into our hearts that we would change on the inside and love you more and love each other more. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So how much do you love Jesus? How much do you love Jesus? I got to say, I love him more today than I did when I got saved. I got to say, the more I get into the Word of God, the more I love him. The more I start to understand the Scriptures more and more. I mean, do you ever read the Bible and just start weeping? You know, you read things and you go, oh, well, that's pretty cool. And then you read them like the hundredth time and you just start weeping. God, that is so good. Lord, you are so, so good to me. To save a wretch like me. I was a wretch. If you knew me, you wouldn't want to save me. But that's how deep his love is for us. That he would die on the cross for you, for me. And what is the proof of your love for Jesus? How do you show your love for Jesus? What is the proof in your life, in your lifestyle, in your actions, in your speech, in your doings? <laughs> I was thinking about this message this week and how much do I love Jesus, and I thought about, you ever seen like couples that are dating for like the first time? And they're just a mess, right? I mean, they're just like, you know, they just want to be with each other. They got to call each other all the time. It's just like, I got to hear your voice, you know. And, and there's they're just this whole thing like, you know, hey, what do you want to do? I don't care. Whatever you want to do. Where do you want to go? I don't care. Where do you want to go? What do you want to eat? Whatever you want to eat. It's almost sickening. <laughs> and then you get married and everybody cares where we go and what we eat and what we do. And I think of the Bible when it says, return to your first love. When God warns the church of Ephesus, return to your first love. Repent and return to your first love. Remember how you loved your spouse before you got married. You would do anything to be with them. And that's what God wants for you with his relationship with you. He would want you to do anything 
to be with Him, to just get off alone with your Bible and in prayer and talk to the Father. Read the Scriptures, weep together, laugh together. And then to go out and just say, Lord, you know what? I'm going to do Your will and I'm just going to love on people like You love on me. Does that describe you? Do you love Jesus enough to be used by Him? Do you love Jesus enough to be a use to Him? Can He use you? You say, well, Steve, I've never been to Bible college. I've never been to seminary. That doesn't matter. Those things are great. But those don't make you a servant. Those don't make you a pastor. Those don't make you a leader. They just help you along the way. How do I become a leader in the church? Serve. Allow God to work in and through your life. What are some of the evidences of a true believer? Well, love. Grace. Mercy. Forgiveness. Someone that prayers, prays a lot. Someone that gives. Someone that serves. Someone that's a soldier in the army of the Lord. Willing to go into the battle willing to go into our uncharted areas and to give the gospel even at the risk of being attacked, beaten, or killed. Someone that's other-centered and not self-centered. Someone that lifts the hands of others. Someone that's more concerned with lifting the hands of others and encouraging others rather than them being lifted up and encouraged. You know, I love the people in this church because they're, they, there's so many times they come in and they say, what can I do? That's awesome. How can I help? And I always tell them, you know what? Find somebody you don't know and go love on them. Just smother them with love. Be used by God. Do these things I say describe you? Are you someone known for love? Are you someone that's known for grace and mercy? Are you someone that's known for forgiving? Do you have a prayer life? Do you get into the Word of God? Are you a giver or are you a taker? Do you serve or do you want to be served? Are you a soldier for Christ? Are you other-centered or are you self-centered? Do you lift the hands of others or are you somebody that always needs to be catered to? Because, you know, in every church you have a little stinking rebellion sheep, a little high-maintenance sheep that are just focused on them. And then leadership has to deal with little high-maintenance sheep. Don't be a high-maintenance sheep. When we look at verse 19, and Paul says, I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. Paul cared about the Philippians. And he wants to send Timothy because he trusts Timothy. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. That's a heavy statement right there. I have no one. What? Out of all the churches he planted, all the guys, I have no one like-minded who would sincerely care for your state. He says, I have no one that would care for you like I would. But Timothy has proven himself. But then he goes on and says this. This, this scares me. For all seek their own and not the things which are of Christ Jesus. Wow. 
So let me give you a little background on Timothy. Timothy was born in Lystra. Timothy was really young. He was probably a teenager when he first met Paul. Paul blew through Lystra on his first missionary journey. It was in Lystra where he caused a riot, and they dragged him outside. They stoned him and left him for dead. But God revived him and brought him back to life. And instead of digging out, he went right back in the city. That's heavy. That's how much he loved Christ. He didn't take offense to the ones that stoned him. His heart was broke that they were broken and didn't know Jesus and they were perishing and on their way to hell. And that's the heart of Christ to get up after a mob just beat you to a pulp to almost the point of death and actually died and then God brings you back and what's the first thing you want to do? I want to go the other way. Forget those guys. Let them burn. Right? Come on. You're like that too, right? Okay, maybe it's just me. But Paul's like, oh my gosh, they're on their way to hell. And he goes back into that town to preach the message. Now, I don't know if he really wanted to give them the gospel or just have them finish him off so he could go into glory because he got a glimpse of glory. But I got to think he wanted to see them saved. Timothy was half Jew and half Gentile. His father was a Gentile. His mom and grandma were Jewish, and your Jewishness was determined through the mother. And Paul, coming through on his second missionary journey, runs into Timothy. Now, remember, him and Barnabas got into it because John Mark had dug out on them on the first missionary journey. They needed another person like John Mark. Timothy became that guy his right-hand guy, to help do errands, to keep things running smooth, to be there to lift the hands of Paul so Paul could do what he was called to do, preach the word and pray. Timothy was like-minded, it says. Like-minded. Do you have a lot of friends? I, I, you know, you could say, yeah, I got a lot of friends, but do you have a lot of good friends? You may have a lot of friends. You know, according to Facebook, I have thousands of friends. And I'm not sure how good of a friend they are that they might like me one day and then unlike me the next day. Or friend me or then defend friend me. But I think in our lives that we only have a handful of really good friends that we know if we asked them to do something and they said yes, they would do it. That there's very little amount of people that actually have enough integrity to always keep their word. And so though you might have a lot of friends, a lot of acquaintances, how many really good friends do you have? And those good friends are basically determined because you're like-minded. I don't know about you, but I have more friends in the church than I do family members throughout the world. I have people in the church that feel more like family than some of my family. Why? We're like-minded. We have the mind of Christ. Isn't that what he's been telling us all along? Have the mind of Christ. Be like-minded. And how do you do that? You humble yourself. You don't have selfish ambition. You're about others and not yourself. You just love God so much because you understand how much God loves you. 
And when you understand how much God loves you, then God can use you. Isn't it funny when you meet visitors, even in the church, like somebody who's never even been here before, all of a sudden you just feel this connection. Somebody from the other side of the planet. Connection. Why? Jesus. My youngest son, he's 22, he went off to run a 400-acre cattle ranch in Sonoma. He's out in the middle of nowhere. 400 acres. He finally met his neighbors the other day. 400 acres away. She's a nurse and he's a retired policeman. You can't have better neighbors, right? And they get to know each other and they're starting to talk and they're introducing and, and then all of a sudden they mention that they go to Calvary Chapel in, I think it's Wilson or Willow or something that's right by Hillsburg. Well, like, you don't even know what I'm talking about. Anyway, it doesn't matter. But anyway, it's, it's probably, you know, 40 minutes away from where they're at. And they go, yeah, we go to this Calvary Chapel. And my son goes, my dad's a Calvary Chapel pastor. And they're like, no way, where at? And they go, on the north shore of Kauai. They go, we've been there. We heard your dad preach. Next thing you know, they're bringing over farm fresh eggs and, and, and veggies and things like that. Why? Like-minded. There was a bond immediately there. What? We got Jesus. There's a connection. There's a sense of family. There's a friendship. Friends are like-minded. Let me read you something from um, John. You can turn there if you like. John 15. I think this is good. John chapter 15, go to the left. John 15, verse 17. Let's see. No, verse 15. No longer do I call you servants. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things that I heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Isn't that heavy? You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. And whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you these things I command you that you love one another. Isn't that good? That we would sincerely care for others. We see that in these two men right here, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Because they were serving unconditionally. They were serving. They saw that God was using the Apostle Paul. They understood leadership and order in the fellowship. And that Paul's whole thing was to give the Gospel, to teach the Word of God, to be praying. And so they, they lifted the burdens of everything else around him. So that he could do that very thing. Because they saw the bigger picture. It wasn't about them. It wasn't even about Paul. It was about Jesus and how much they loved God. And if you love God, you're willing to do everything, whether it's scrubbing a toilet, vacuuming a floor, giving the gospel, leading worship, or teaching children's ministry. You're all good because why? You're doing it for Him. 
And here's this guy, Epaphroditus, that comes. And I don't even know if he really even knew Paul. Maybe he did. It doesn't say in the Scriptures. But he obviously got saved in Philippi. And here's a guy that's willing to go lay down his life. You say, how's he laying down his life? He's going to Rome, number one. It's a three-month journey. And then, you know, it's like every time you come to another city, they got their whole set of illnesses that are there. You know what I'm saying? The water, the food, and things like that. You ever been on a missions trip? You go on a missions trip and you don't drink the water, right? Some places you don't even, you put water, bottled water in your mouth as you take a shower because you don't want the shower water to get in your mouth because you'll get sick. But then all the little kids are just playing in the sewage and they don't get sick. Why? They're immune to it. They've had so much ingested into their body, they're good. But you go there, you're not ready for it, you get sick immediately. So here's this guy risking his life and he obviously got sick, near to death. Not just that, but he's risking his life going to help the Apostle Paul who is on charges for death row because he preached the Gospel. Not the guy you want to be hanging out with when they decide to take his head off. Because now your life's in danger too. Who, who are all these guys? They're his friends. Well, let's get their heads off too. Not going to have that Gospel stuff going around because Caesar thought he was God. These guys sincerely love Paul. They saw the bigger picture and anything they can do was because of the tremendous love they had for Jesus Christ. In verse 21, where he says, for all seek their own and not the things which are of Christ, that verse throttled me. How could Paul say that? I'm going to send Timothy because he sincerely cares for you like I would care for you, for none seek after the things of God. They're seeking after their own things. How, wow. That's a pretty heavy statement to say that all Roman... He's talking to Christians, hello? That all Roman Christians, pastors, ministers, are all seeking their own thing. That everyone's doing their own thing and not the things of God. Ah! And I thought about the era that we're in. Jesus is coming soon. You know that? I mean, look what's happening over in Ukraine. We need to be praying for those people. We need to, look, we've got a box over here. If you want to give, we're going to get money to Ukraine through some Calvary pastors in Poland. Because that'll show how much you love God. And this world's coming to an end. And we're in Laodicea, and, and the, the problem with Laodicea is that we've got a lot of Christians that are born again, they're saved, but everyone's doing their own thing and not the things of God. Oh, you love Jesus. That's awesome. You're going to heaven. I get it. But you want God just to cater to you, answer your prayers, give you what you want. And when God says, I, I'd like you to do this for me, you're like, I'm out. And then there's people like Timothy's and Epaphroditus that see the bigger picture. You know, when Romans 12 says, I beseech you by the mercies of God to present yourself a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. For everything that God has done for you, it is our reasonable response to say, Lord, I'm a soldier for Christ. Doesn't Paul say that? Epaphroditus is a fellow soldier. 
Here I am reporting for duty. What do you have me do for today? But how many times has he put in my heart to do something? I go, I ain't doing that. <laughs> That's crazy. I wish I could love God more and say yes to every single thing, every single time. Do you want to be a leader in God's kingdom? Do you want to hear God say to you, well done, good and faithful servant? If you do, that means you serve. And in God's kingdom, he says, if you want to be great in the kingdom, be the servant of all. That totally just flips our world's process, doesn't it? In our world, we have CEOs. You got a CEO, and then you got people under him, and then you got people under them, you got people under them, you got the pyramid, right? Boom, CEO at the top. In God's kingdom, he flips that pyramid. The greatest in the kingdom is on the bottom. And he serves all these people, and they serve all these people, and they serve all these people, and they serve all these people. Humble thyself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. If you're proud, he'll resist you. Are you being used by God? Are you allowing God to use you? You have to make yourself available. You say, well, what can I do? I can't do anything. Really? Do you really underestimate God? Doesn't the Bible tell us that we can do all things through Christ? All, all, hello, all. I looked it up in the Greek. It means all. Check this out. John 14, 12. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. Most assuredly, I say to you, he that believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. How many of you believe in Jesus? Okay, now let me read that again. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. What? You can do greater works than Jesus? Are... Wait. Tap out. Is that true? Does the Bible lie? What does it say? You're... Check this out. When Jesus did his ministry for three years, he did amazing miracles, didn't he? He preached truth. But he didn't have a lot of converts. You say, what about the feeding of the 5,000? That was strictly the feeding of the 5,000. <laughs> and when you study that carefully, they say men, they don't mention the women and the children, so there could have been feeding the 15,000 or the 20,000. But those were people who came for the show. Those were people that came to get fed. Those were people that were coming to Jesus for what they could get. Is that you as a Christian? Those were people that wanted to see the miracles. They wanted to be fed. They wanted to have a chicken in every pot. They wanted Jesus to overthrow Rome and take over. But he didn't have a lot of converts. And then check this out. On the day of Pentecost, Peter filled with the Holy Spirit, preaches his first sermon, and 3,000 get saved. I'm like, are you kidding me? 
And then, not long after that, he preaches again, and it says 5,000 men got saved. Didn't even say women or children. So I'm thinking within two weeks, the church has already blown up to fifteen to 20,000 people. In two weeks. Greater deeds you will be able to do by the power of the Holy Spirit than Jesus did while he was here. Because there is no greater miracle than salvation. What good is it to be healed by cancer and die and go to hell? What good is that? The greatest miracle you'll ever see is someone get saved. In verse 22, he says that you know that Timothy has proven his character, that as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. Therefore, I hope to send him at once as soon as I see how it goes for me. So Paul was waiting to see if he was going to lose his head or not. And he didn't. He actually got released. He says, but I trust in the Lord that I myself shall come shortly. And then he goes into Epaphroditus. Yet I considered it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my fellow brother, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier, but your messenger, the one who ministered to my need. So Epaphroditus was someone that was sent to Paul to bring a love offering. Philippi was known for supporting the work of God in Paul's life. And I don't know how much Paul knew this guy, but they became very attached because they had something in common, Jesus Christ. He calls him a fellow brother, a fellow worker, a fellow soldier. But your messenger who came to minister to my needs, and since he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick, for indeed he was sick almost unto death. But God had mercy on him, not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. And so he came out there to minister to Paul. In, in those days, when you were in a Roman jail, they allowed people to come to bring you food and, and the things that you need because they, you know, it wasn't like they had a kitchen. Like, you know, hey, hey what's, what's prison serving today for breakfast, lunch, and dinner? They, they, you know, if you didn't have somebody to bring you food, you died. And the things that you needed. And so Epaphroditus came with the things that were needed for Paul to bless him, risking his own life. And while he's there, he gets sick. And historians say that he was sick for some three months unto death. Can you imagine? I don't know if, if you've ever been on the mission field and got sick, worst place ever. <laughs> it's not your bed. It ain't the food you like. And you're uncomfortable. And he was three months. He saw the bigger picture, un, near unto death. He was willing to lay down his life. Are you willing to lay down your life for Christ? What if God said to you right now, go to Ukraine and feed the people that are poor coming into Poland? Well, I, I can't afford to do that. Oh, let me give you the money. Someone says, hey, I, God put it on my heart to buy you a ticket. Oh, I don't have any training. Oh, by the way, someone's going to go with you that knows how to do this. Oh, well, um, I don't know if I can get off work. Oh, guess what? You just got fired. <laughs> Let me make it easy for you. And word had gotten back to the Philippians that Epaphroditus, the, this man they loved, to go take care of another man they loved, was so sick unto death that it grieved them and it broke their heart. And he, Epaphroditus cared so much for the people 
that it bummed him out that they were bummed out about him. Do you know anybody like that in your family? That when someone's sick, they're just there to care for that person. And then when they get sick, they're like, oh, don't worry about me, honey. But you want to worry about it. They're like, no, don't worry about me. I don't want you. God, I just don't want you to worry about me. I'll be all right. That was Epaphroditus. Now, here's something interesting. Didn't we read all through the book of Acts where, where, where Paul did these amazing miracles? Everywhere he was going, he was healing people. And how about, how about when they were stealing his handkerchiefs and his aprons and they were laying them on people and people were getting healed and demons were being cast out from his handkerchiefs, his sweatbands? So here's the question. Why didn't he heal Epaphroditus? You know, when you study through the Scriptures, you see that Timothy had a stomach problem. Why didn't Paul heal him? And then there was another guy. What was his name? Um, Trophimus? That it says, Paul says, I left Trophimus and Miletus sick. So here's my question. Why didn't Paul heal Timothy? Why didn't he heal Trophimus? Why didn't he heal Epaphroditus if he had this healing power? I say that to make a point. Because many people are caught up in this faith prosperity teaching that you're sick because you don't have faith. And it's a lie. It's false doctrine. Oh, Epaphroditus was sick because he didn't have faith. Shame on you. False doctrine. Well, Paul didn't have enough faith to heal him. Shame on you. False doctrine. I believe in healing. I've seen it. And I believe according to the Scriptures that we are to lay the hands onto the sick and we are to believe that God will heal them and we are to thank God ahead of time for the victory. But it's in God's hands, not mine. And what I think was happening here is towards the end of Paul's life, he was doing less healing because he was trying to point people to Jesus and not to himself. Because it's so easy to start looking at the so-called person that's swinging the jacket at the conferences and you know banging people on the head. And start thinking it's something like, boy, if he just prayed for me. No. I don't want to get caught up into that. Notice what Paul says here about Epaphroditus. He is a, a brother, a fellow worker, and a fellow soldier. A brother, a fellow worker, servant, soldier. I like that. What makes him his brother? They're like-minded. Jesus. Why do I say that? Have you guys ever heard people say, check this out, we're all just God's children? You ever heard that? No, we're not. Oh, we're all, it's just the universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of man. We're all God's children. No, we're not. Don't fall into that. That's a new age philosophy that came from years ago, decades ago. They were all just going after the same God. So whatever you call God, that's just, just the same God. It doesn't matter if, if it's, you know, the God of Israel or Allah or Buddha or Krishna, you know, whatever. We're all just going to this. No, we're not. Buddha's not God. Krishna's not God. Allah is not God. Buddha said, I knew a way. Krishna said, I saw a way. Jesus said, I am the way. 
the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me. Turn back to John 8. Oh, gosh. We running out of time? I can't tell. What time is it? Does it matter? No. Okay. Okay, I'm going to rush. I'm sorry. I'm getting sidetracked, caught up into things, and I love it. Um, John 8, look at verse 42. Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? This is Jesus speaking. And if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears God's word. Therefore, you do not hear because you are not God's of God. You are not of God. What does he say? You're either for God, you're either in the family of God because you trust in Jesus Christ, or you're of your father, the devil. That's pretty harsh. If you're here today and you're an unbeliever, you're like, hey, I don't like that. That's offensive. Well, you can change. So how do you become a child of God? How do you determine whether someone's a child of God? Romans 8. Romans 8. Verse 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. So are you here today and you're led by the Spirit of God? Well, then you're a child of God. If you're here today and you're not led by the Spirit, then you're not a child of God. 1 John 3, 1 says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are the children of God. So he calls Epaphroditus a brother. He calls him a fellow worker, a servant. He calls him a soldier. We're in a battle, aren't we? Didn't he tell us that, didn't he tell us that we, we are stuck in the midst of a perverse, dark generation? And that we are fighting the good fight, and if you want to go forward for Jesus, you're going to be in a battle. If you try to share Jesus, you will be attacked for that, verbally, uh, even physically. And that we need to understand that we are soldiers for Christ, and we need to get in the battle. Some of you need to get in the battle, because we're running out of time. Jesus is coming soon. I believe that with all my heart. These guys were brothers of Paul. These guys were fellow servants. These guys were soldiers. These guys were there to lift up the hands of others. Does that describe you? Do you lift up the hands of others? Whose hands are you lifting up? Or you just want everybody to lift your hands? In verse 27, he says, 
For indeed, he was sick almost unto death, but God had mercy on him, not only on him also, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I sent him the more eagerly, when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less sorrowful. Receive him, therefore, to the Lord with all gladness. Hold such men in esteem because of the work of Christ. He came close to death, not regarding his life, to supply that was lacking in service towards me. To supply what was lacking in Paul's life, he brought those things to Paul. He, he's, in other words, he's saying, listen, I'm sending this guy back. I know you sent him to be my right-hand guy, but I'm going to send him back. He did his job, and I don't want you to think he failed. He got sick. I'm sending him back with a report, and I want you to receive him with gladness and hold such a man in high esteem. What does that mean? In the body of Christ, we are supposed to hold in esteem others who have been put to lead the church. Now, this is really hard for me to kind of teach on because it sounds almost like I'm trying to pump myself up. I'm not trying to pump myself up. The Bible is very clear that we are to esteem others higher than ourselves, and God gives us leaders, shepherds, pastors, elders, workers in the church, and we are supposed to honor them. And he is asking this church to honor this man who is a leader in that church who went to do a work for God to help Paul. Now he's coming back and to honor what he's done. Hebrews 13.7 says, Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, consider the outcome of their conduct. So here he says, listen, these guys that are leaders over the church, they are held under higher condemnation. And he says, remember those who rule over. First thing you got to say, is somebody ruling over me? And then the next question is, do I want someone to rule over me? And if the answer is yes, then who do you want to rule over you? Jesus. So God puts an order like he puts an order in the house. He puts an order in the church and he says, remember those who rule over you. That means a pastor is not a dictator. Because we see pastors that control the church. They control families. You've got to check in with the pastor when you spend more than a certain amount of money. You've got to check into him about purchase of a house. You've got to check in with him to see if he's okay with who you want to marry. That is wrong. That's lording over the people. God warned. He said, God said, I hate the Nicolaitans. Nikao to conquer the laity, the people. We are not as pastors to rule over the people. I'm here to serve you. I'm here to minister to you, to pour into you, to, to lay down my life for you, to love you, to encourage you, to help you, not you to serve me. And he says, you should esteem those, you should honor those, you should remember those who rule like that. I'm not ruling over you in the sense of a dictator, I'm here to serve you. Hebrews 13, 17, he says, Obey those who rule over you. Be submissive, for they watch out for your souls. A true pastor loves you, and he wants the best for you. He pours into you. He doesn't want anything for himself. And those, that, and those who must give an account means I'm, God's going to hold me accountable for how I did that with you guys. And then he goes on to this. He's, well, let me just read that whole verse again. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, 
for that would be unprofitable for you. Not with, let, let that pastor do it with joy and not with grief. What, what is he saying? Don't be a stinking, rebellious little high-maintenance sheep. That's what he's saying to you. See the bigger picture. See, we love that picture of Jesus carrying the little lamb on his shoulder. It's so cute. You know, the long-haired, green-eyed surfer Jesus, blonde hair. We don't know what he looked like, but you know that painting, right? And he's got the, he's got the little lamb, and it's just so cute. And a lot of you don't even know the story behind that. See, when a shepherd, and I'll close with this, because it's getting late. Is it? What time is it? I can't tell. I can't see. It's glaring. What time is it? 9.08. Okay, I'm late. Austin's going to kill me. Okay, the shepherd, when he had a little, check this out, when he had a little stinking, rebellious, high-maintenance sheep who was always causing trouble in the flock, and running here and running there and doing his own thing, that shepherd would take that sheep and break his hind leg. And then he would put that sheep around his neck for a few weeks and carry that sheep everywhere he went. That little sheep, that little rebellious sheep, stayed close to the shepherd. He knew the scent of the shepherd. He knew his smell. He, he felt his voice when he spoke because he was on his shoulders. And at the end of the, the few weeks, when that shepherd put that sheep down, that little sheep now never left his side. And maybe someone here today needs to have their leg spiritually broken. So that Jesus would leave the 99 just for you. To carry you close to him for a time being. That you wouldn't be that little high maintenance. Rebellious sheep anymore. That now when he puts you down you never leave his side. But you only do the will of the shepherd. Let's pray. Father thank you. For your love. Your patience. Your mercy. Your grace. Lord, bless these people now as they go out into the mission field. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys.